Hello, Husky fans! This is Max Cerullo, and you are listening to another episode of Yes, UConn, the podcast where we dive deep into the greatest UConn basketball games ever played. And um, yeah, you know what? Today we are going to talk about one of the recent classics that we've had. Uh, This is probably a game that aged better in the moment than probably any other game that we'll ever do on this list. Uh, We're going to talk about the Florida Shabazz Napier buzzer beater at Gamble in 2014. Uh, Tim Fontenelle is back again. Uh, Tim, I know this was a game that means a lot to you personally. Uh, So, you know, first of all, welcome back. Uh, How's everything going? Good man, thanks for having me back. Always, uh, always love doing this. I feel like we're just going uh, game by game on that amazing season, huh? Yeah, really. Well, I mean, this is kind of where that season's magic really began, um, and you know, for all the obvious reasons, Shabazz Napier's buzzer beater at the end of that game is—I mean, he had a lot of epic shots and a lot of epic performances. But this might have been pretty close to the top of the list, if not the very top of his, you know, best games and best moments at UConn. Um, I mean, I don't, well, I guess just for starters, would you, would you agree with that assessment? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you think about what happened just from that game, um, going forward. I mean, obviously the regular season was kind of a weird one, especially because it was the first year in the American, but when Napier hit that shot, it was just more confirmation that he could hit any shot and kind of will this team do a win. And they had the the pieces around him to kind of make anything happen, even though they may not have been on paper or even in terms of their performances, the best team in the country, they were definitely worthy of competing for a national title. And obviously against that Florida team, we know what happened. We, you know, they end up bookmarking a 30 game winning streak with losses to UConn that season. Uh, That was, that was a really, really good Florida team. So, I mean, that was, this was just overall one of the most amazing games I've seen in a long time. Yeah, so that's what I meant by the fact that it aged really well, because in the moment, this was a game between two teams who were in the, like, we'll say the teens. Uh, I don't exactly remember where they were, but both of them were some ranked somewhere between 10 and 20. And, you know, as far as we were concerned, this was a really good UConn team playing a really good Florida team in a really good Gimple Pavilion crowd. And, you know, after it was over, we were all like, damn, that was dope. <laughs> like, like that was a great game. You, this UConn team's really got something. I don't think we expected it to necessarily be a final four preview though. And I, I mean, Florida ends up winning. Yeah. Like you said, over 30 games in a row after this. So, you know, we, we knew in the moment, wow, that Florida team's really good. But I mean, by the time they met again and, you know, in, in a, you know, the final four, it was like, oh damn, like, you know, people were actually, you know, this is kind of skipping ahead a little bit, but people were actually like, you know, that that win before was a fluke. This Florida team oh, is the yeah. best team in the country. And I was like thinking, I mean, didn't we watch the same game like a couple months ago? Like these two teams are really evenly matched, but, you know, it, it definitely, you know, Florida was good, but UConn definitely at no point seemed like they were totally overmatched or anything. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the only... The only thing that really like stuck out to me about Florida, obviously they were really good, but that was a big team. Like not necessarily height wise, like UConn was taller than a lot of its opponents when you look at like their average height and stuff, except for Kentucky, which was the tallest team in the country. Um, Florida was like right behind UConn, but they their guys were so big. Like you look at a guy like Patrick Young, who looked like. He was Jeff Adrian with a bit more muscle mass and a few more inches. Like I, I couldn't believe like both times watching him play in person. It was like it was looking at like a freak of nature, just the way he was built. 
Um, him and Dorian Finney-Smith and Casey Prather, those guys were just massive. So that was a lot to contest with just on its own, let alone them being really outstanding basketball team. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we'll probably get into this later, but the the matchup between Patrick Young versus Phil Nolan and Tyler Oleander, I mean, let's just say, get this out of the way. This was a very, this is a pro a pro Phil Nolan and Tyler Oleander podcast, but that that may have been the biggest mismatch in college basketball history. It's like those those guys are, you know, generally speaking, they're you know they're tall, but they're a little on the skinnier side, you know, at least for, uh, Phil Nolan for sure, anyway. And then Patrick Young is basically Zeus, like just. <laughs> Just like the, I mean, not even the tallest, but necessarily, but just like the the biggest dude like ever, like <laughs> just an absolute yeah. monster. So watching that matchup was a little bit uh, troubling at times. And you know, Amita Brima, you know, at the very least, he did he stayed out of foul trouble, I guess, which is you know, yeah. <laughs> at least he stayed on the court. <laughs> the other guys, it was it was just, uh, oh man. Uh, but you know, on on the flip side, of course, the guard play for UConn that whole season was just outstanding. And this game. You know, one thing that really stood out to me, you know, Shabazz, it's not just the last shot he made, but it was all the shots he made. He, It seemed like every time Florida made a push, Shabazz would just knock down a three. A couple of them were really tough threes. And, you know, it's like, okay, they're, they're going to be fine. And inevitably, there'd be some kind of 6-0, 8 nothing, you know, 10-0 run. And all of a sudden, UConn, you know, they go from being down 8 to up 2. You know, that happened multiple times. And Shabazz was usually the spark at the start of all those rallies. Yeah, I mean, the, I, it was crazy. Like watching it back, I kind of forgot how how much of an impact DeAndre Daniels had in this game outside of the outside of the rebound. But really, when when you go to the box score and you look at it, it was all Shabazz. Uh, twenty six points, just the way he shot the ball. Like he said, he was like five of eight from three. I mean, it was again one of those situations where the dude could will UConn to a win because I mean, everyone else outside of those two was in single figures that day. Uh, Boatwright had nine, Giffey had eight, but other than that, it was really, like, everyone else was quiet. Yeah, definitely a great three-point shooting game for UConn. Uh, they they shot almost 50% from three, so, you know, that clearly they had no chance to really drive and, you know, score in the, in the paint against this team. Like, the Florida was way too athletic and way too, you know, physically large to to really penetrate on them, so... <laughs> You know, the, they needed the they needed the, their shots to fall, and obviously that was a strength of that team for sure. Um, another strength was the crowd. I, I mean, you know, we've seen a lot of epic Gamble crowds, but I would say that within the 2010s decade, this is probably a top three Gamble crowd for sure. Um, what do you what, you you were of course sitting courtside and had a, probably a better view than anyone. What was your impression of the atmosphere in Gamble that day? Amazing, just absolutely incredible especially the student section they they showed up for that game they knew it was what it was about and like i always you know like obviously the 2010s i was at a lot of home games and i always try to like think about my top five loudest moments at gamble and this one like just ever is easily like easily within the top five and i think makes a run at number one um which is or i'd say number two probably behind uh, behind the alley-oop against Texas. And uh, this, like, just the whole game, that crowd was up for it. They were ready, and when Napier hit that shot at the end, it, like, the, the it was funny, the student section didn't want to storm the court, thank goodness, because we were ranked 12th in the country, and we were not, we were not a bad team yet. 
Uh, obviously ended up being a really good team that year. Uh, but the way they just kind of like followed, they, like, everyone kind of wanted to follow Napier into the locker room. Uh, like the whole, like you see the student section move is like a swarm after he hits the shot and they all just like pile into the corner. And I just thought that was one of the coolest things. They, uh, I, they were wild that they were a lot of fun that night. Oh man. Yeah. That was, yeah. The, the way they, and it was like start to finish too. Like, you know, the UCONN chants were absolutely massive every time they broke out. You know, there was a, yeah, just from start to finish, that's, that's, you know, one of my measures of a great crowd is, you know, not, not necessarily how you finish, but you know, are, were you there for the start? You there for, you know, all the big right. runs? Yeah. They, they, they showed up for sure. Oh yeah. Um, this team, uh, this game rather like, so everyone obviously is familiar with the 2014 team story, but it's kind of worth reiterating where we were at here. So this is played in early December of uh, 2013. So, you know, pretty early in the season, you know, at this point, we don't really know quite what to expect, but we have good reason to expect that it's going to be a good year. Uh, the 2013 team was, uh, you know, they'd been banned from the postseason. It's their first year with uh, Kevin Ollie. So, you know, Jim Calhoun had only just retired. You know, they know that they're going to be leaving the big, well, they know that they're basically going to have the American Conference foisted upon them. And... You know, it's a t- it's a tough year, but they made the most of it. They win twenty games. It felt like a feel good year, and felt like something that they could use to you know springboard into something great. Uh, this team started seven and zero leading into this game, so you know, they took care of business in the non conference. And then this Florida team was like, okay, so this is the test. Like, are we good or is this what's what are we gonna make of this? And yeah, I mean, for, like we said, absolutely lived up to the hype. Um, you know, absolute classic of a game. And, um, you know, I don't I, I don't exactly remember how I felt in the immediate aftermath, but I do know I, w- I was like, OK, so we're going to have a season here. What was your impression, you know, of watching the game? Do, uh, you never want to say like, oh, they're obviously going to win, win it all. But how did you feel coming out of this one? Um, I felt a lot better coming out of it than I did going into it. I will say that. Um, you know, like you said, they were they were seven and zero coming in. Uh, that game against Maryland at uh, the Barclays Center at the start of the season was outstanding. Um, come out of that with a one point win, and then obviously you have the I think it was the two K at uh, at Madison Square Garden where they beat Boston College in Indiana on back to back nights. But that still like that wasn't really convincing to me, and I wanted to see them. I had been waiting for this Florida game because I wanted to see them come up against this team and see how they handled them. Um, you know, coming, we knew they were bigger, they were stronger, they were one of the best teams in the country for a reason, and their only loss, they were 6-1 and one at that point, their only loss before UConn was at Wisconsin, which was a really good game, and, you know, going to Wisconsin, especially those Bo Ryan teams, not easy, uh, Death Texas, Bo Ryan, but <laughs> they, they come out of this one, and obviously they had to grind it out, it was, it was, uh, it was a little nerve-wracking, but they win that one, and you're like, well, okay, they beat Florida. Now they're going into a conference that they should run through, uh, except for Louisville. Obviously, that didn't happen, but it definitely made me feel a lot better. And then going up against Florida, I remember the going up against Florida um, in the Final Four. Obviously, again, this is getting ahead of, well ahead of the rest of that season, but... I was in an elevator at Jerry World, and I there was a there were a couple people from Florida behind me. I just heard them talk, talking about how you know 
this was a completely different Florida team. UConn got lucky in the first game, and there was absolutely no way that the Huskies were going to win that game in the Final Four. And I was like, well, a lot of people said we probably weren't going to win that game either. And we're a different team, too. You guys may have uh, may not have lost since then, but this team had a couple of players that really stepped into bigger roles after that and really stepped up when they needed to. And obviously they had Shabazz Napier and Florida didn't. So I was like, eh, be careful with that one, guys. Yeah, I, yeah, to, man, to be a fly in the wall in like Florida, just in general, after that final four game, yeah. man, what a, what a, what a, that, what a, that, what, what a, what a, what a, man, I don't even know how to describe it. What a, what a, how much would that suck? <laughs> Got me babbling over here. Um, yeah. So this game, man, um, great game, um, pretty close throughout. So, you know, kind of to dive right in. You know, we kind of get a good taste of what to expect right out of the gate. Uh, Shabazz and uh, Wilbekin, uh, they basically trade threes to start uh, start it off. And, you know, despite Florida's athleticism, UConn did a really good job of keeping them out of the paint, at least early on. Because for the first, like, four minutes of the game, nobody was getting anything. Like, you know, every time somebody went into the basket, it, it was kind of going horribly for them. Um, and UConn got a couple of solid jams too. You have one uh, where DeAndre kind of gets loose under the basket and just throws one down. Uh, UConn beats a trap, and Phil Nolan throws down a gigantic two-handed slam after like having a dude jump over him to try to stop him. Um, you know, kind of stays within you know a one-possession game, and then uh, Niels Giffey hits a three and puts UConn up by uh, four just before the under-12 timeout. Um, and obviously it didn't really stay that close for the next, like, I don't know, eight, eight or nine minutes, but you know, the opening 10 minutes definitely felt like a good, uh, you know, the opening salvo of a classic. Um, what do you remember, I guess, just about how this uh, played out and, uh, you know, kind of UConn's ability to, to stay, to keep pace, uh, you know, when, you know, basically keep Florida from bullying them. I think that was the most important thing. Uh, there was a point where Florida got up by eight. Um, and at that point. It was like, all right, well, if UConn doesn't get the next bucket, this game could get out of hand. Like they, Florida was already on a run, and this was like this was nearing halftime too. This was like right before the under four timeout, and then UConn turns it around. They're down twenty four to sixteen, and next thing you know, they're up thirty to twenty five. So I mean, that was that was massive for them to be able to just like, and that was an example of what we saw all year. UConn may have gotten down. But they were never out of it when they were down, except when they're down 81-48 at Louisville. Um, that, like, you know, when you have Shabazz and Daniels and Gafai on the floor, like, they're always going to be in that game. And so to turn that around, I think, was a massive point in the season, even there in the first half. Oh, absolutely, yeah. That, so that four minutes between the 12 and the eight-minute timeouts, uh, things, yeah, things got a little bit hairy. Florida goes on a 13-2 run. Um, the only thing kind of breaking that up was Shabazz knocked down a really tough step back uh, two. Uh, you know, one of the more impressive shots he hit all game. Um, but yeah, no, so you, like you said, 24-16. Um, and now, um, next thing you know, you got a bunch of threes coming for UConn. You know, DeAndre Daniels knocks one down. Shabazz knocks one down. Shabazz hits a couple free throws. And then, bang, you're, at the, you're all tied up at 24 going into the under four timeout. Uh, and then, yeah, that wasn't it either. You got a, you know, Ryan Boatwright knocks down a three himself, gives UConn the lead. Daniel sets another one. So now you got a 14 to one run. Um, and then, you know, you pretty much completely flipped it. Now it's 30 to 25. Uh, you know, it winds up, you know, Florida answers with a couple of baskets late. Um, and then you, there you go. You're 30 to 29 lead at halftime. 
Yeah. So, you know, I guess just like, you know, what do you think about just like the, you know, when, when it's halftime, obviously there's a lot of reason to feel good. Uh, what, what do you, do you recall, you know, kind of what your conversation with, uh, with Mike, uh, you know, your colleague, Mike Penn was like at this, uh, at this point in the game? Oh man, I miss Mike Penn. Just need to throw that out there first. Um, I mean, we were both, you know, we were both expecting a really, really intense second half. We knew it was kind of gut check time for UConn and what was going to be their biggest non-conference game uh, heading into the American. You know, being only up by one, you know, that left plenty of room for error, plenty of uh, plenty of opportunities for things to go wrong. And obviously, Florida again with their strength, with their size. You know, obviously having a guy like Scotty Wilbekin on the floor, we you know. There was always a chance that Florida was going to come back and still find a way to make this ugly or find a way to just to break through and win this by two or three possessions. Yeah. So uh, UConn had to be at their absolute best in the second half. Yeah, so Wilbekin's probably worth highlighting, actually, because this was his first game of the season, I think. Or if, if, if it wasn't his first game, it was close to it because he, he'd been suspended for a few games early due to some uh, some issues that, you know, that he was having. And, um, you know, he, he was, he's, he was no Shabazz Napier, but he was kind of like, he played a similar role for Florida. Um, you know, rewatching this game, you can see why very impressive player can do a lot. He had a couple of crazy defensive plays like at one point he like broke up like a three on one fast break, basically out of nowhere. Um, you know, so definitely a guy who like, you can see kind of like, you know, point to why Florida was so good. He played a big role and, um, you know, it was it was a fun showdown. I thought for sure. You know, he he and he he and Shabazz kind of went back and forth at various points, and um, you know, obviously he you know Shabazz is still in the NBA, and Wilbekin. I'm not uh, to be honest. I'm not sure what he's up to these days, but you know, it was it was fun uh, for sure. Do you do you do you have any particular Wilbekin thoughts? Um, well, I know that he had a much better game that day than he did in the Final Four. That's for sure. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I think UConn held him. UConn held them under five points in the final four. Um, well, that yeah, that it was the very start of his season, so everyone was really, uh, really anticipating what he would bring to the table for a Florida team that had already started really well. So um, <laughs> he was obviously he was a big point of emphasis for UConn. They needed to shut him down, and you know, or at least contain him. I think would be would be a better word. And obviously, you know, he ends up with fifteen points. Um, but you know, he, you know, he could have broken out for more than that. He actually, you know, he shot, if, uh, just looking up, he was like six of six of 14. So, I mean, a, a decent shooting day, but he could have done a lot more damage than he actually did. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, he, so he and Casey Prather, especially Prather was an absolute monster in the second half. He, uh, ends up with, uh, I believe he gets up to 19 points. Uh, he was eight for 11 shooting at the time he reached 19 points. And, um, you know, it was a big part of Florida's biggest run of the game. Uh, you know, so coming out of halftime, you know, UConn, I think, scored the opening basket. And then Florida immediately goes on a 7 nothing run. And they sort of retake control of the game. And uh, Prather is just getting to the basket at will. You know, just constantly, like, slashing right in and getting, you know, nobody can stop him. Brima you know, for all his best efforts, isn't blocking him or anything like that. And I believe you, the, I believe it gets up to a, a six point game. Eventually it was a, a 13 to six Florida run uh, to open the half. And then, yeah, then what, what do you expect? Shabazz Napier for three. And then, you know, kind of just 
you know, kind of just keeps going like that. You know, is uh, every time they tried to make a push, uh, you know, Shabazz or somebody would make a shot, keep it kind of close, like within four points or so. And then, then the big run comes. UConn goes on a 10 to nothing run after they fall behind. They take the lead again. They're up 51 to 48. And this was when the crowd just like, the crowd's going crazy. Shabazz is like, got this gigantic grin on his face. He's really pleased with himself after his like, <laughs> after he hits a three to take the lead. Uh, and then I, I think at some point shortly afterwards, uh, uh, Billy Donovan calls a timeout. And then like the roof is practically coming down at this point. Um, you know, just all, Shabazz, this was Shabazz's moment, though, because he hit he has a, a basket in transition. He gets a steal and uh, then he, you know, hit go. You know, I think Daniels hits the tying basket, but just, uh, you know, he was all over the court. This was kind of when he took over. Yeah, I mean, once when they got down seven in the second half, that was another point where I was like, all right, like one or two more Florida baskets and this thing could get really, really bad. Um, like point of no return stuff. And then obviously Shabazz was crucial on the defensive end of the floor, just like always, you know, we always talk about the amazing things he does on offense, but he made those two steals during that run that led to the buckets. And like you said, that grin is one of my favorite moments from this game, watching it back. I hadn't seen it live, obviously, but um, you just knew like when, as soon as you saw that, he's like, yeah, I'm in the zone. Like I can, I can get this done. Don't worry guys. And from there on, I mean, Florida got nervous. And I feel like not necessarily right after that timeout because there was still a bit of time to play. But in the last few minutes especially, they hit UConn with a man-to-man defense that was so suffocating. Like, UConn, UConn rarely ever got a good look. And when they, when they did, uh, a lot of times it fell to someone who might not necessarily be in the right position to make that shot. A guy like Lasan Chroma. Um, I remember he had a he had a wide open look late in the game, and he missed a corner three because you know Napier, Boatwright, Gafai they were all completely taken out of the taken out of it because Florida was just like all right here's where we use our size here's where we use our our defensive abilities and just shut this team down, and you know, they tried. Yeah, you know uh, they get it. They did. Yeah, this was this sequence was awesome. Just so much was was incredible. Um, what happens immediately after was interesting too, because I mentioned Casey Prather and how he was just killing them. Well, he doesn't score again the rest of the way, like the last ten minutes of the game. So they figured they figured out some way to kind of contain him. Uh, he ends up getting called for a travel as part of the big run, and um, you know UConn they're able. I think as they get as far ahead as five points, Boatwright hits a three and that puts them up fifty four to forty nine. And then so Michael Frazier from Florida, he only scores seven points, but we need to give this guy a shout out because his points were some of the biggest of the game. So he hits yeah. a three and that caps off a six to nothing run by Florida, which gives them the lead. They're back up fifty five fifty four. It's kind of a back and forth game the rest of the way. And then Scotty Wilbekin gets hurt. He rolls his ankle at like the three minute mark and he, yeah, I don't believe he came back. So that was huge because, you know, that's their guy. Like, <laughs> you know, if he's on the floor, like this could have all gone down differently, but even still Florida made plays like, you know, with Wilbekin gone, Patrick Young, who bears mentioning has basically fouled out in UConn's entire front court by now. He, he follows up a miss and he gives UConn, uh, he gives Florida the lead with two minutes left. He draws a three-point play against Olander, and that gets him out of there. So now they're up by three with one minute and 16 seconds left. And then uh, Lasan Chroma misses the three, I think you mentioned before. 
but uh, UConn gets the rebound. They find Shabazz, and he is way downtown for three, and he gets fouled. So he draws a four-point play, completes it. There's a kind of alarming moment where he's like down for like like a solid 20 seconds. They're like, oh, shit, is Shabazz alive? <laughs> <laughs> that was a scary moment, man. When uh, when he hit that shot, obviously the place erupted. Um, for me, my next thing was because I was at I was at a weird angle for it because I was like down by the corner near the locker room, uh, that far end of press row, and so I didn't really see the contact that led to the foul. I just you know I saw Napier go down, and part of me thought you know he definitely tried to sell that a little bit. But then, you know, watching back, seeing the contact, and then obviously Napier staying down in what became, you know, we talked about some of the loudest moments I've heard in Campbell. There was never a more silent moment. That was, like, pins and needles, just everyone just hushed, tense, scared. When when Napier went down, that was either, like, you know, either he just needs a second or this is our season staring us right in the eyes. And thankfully he got up after a few seconds and coolly went over and took the free throw. Yeah, that, that was, yeah, that was, it was definitely a tense couple seconds for sure. When I watched the replay, I actually, I was having trouble figuring out what happened because I couldn't tell if he rolled his ankle or if he got his knee bumped or something. I mean, I'm guessing it was the ankle, but it was a little bit weird, but yeah, I'm sure, well, Hey, I, I'm not, Shabazz is one of the toughest dudes around, so I'm sure it must've hurt like hell for however long that was. <laughs> Yeah, um, definitely. So back to Michael Frazier, though. So after after Shabazz completes the four point play, this dude gets to the basket and he scores a two. And all of a sudden, you, uh, Florida's up again, 64 63, with 17.7 seconds left. So five of his seven points were the biggest of the game. So good, good for him. Uh, luckily, <laughs> still 17 seconds left. This final play, when I rewatched it, I'd forgotten how chaotic it was. Like, I, I in my mind's eye, I see Shabazz making the shot, running off the court, the, the crowd going crazy. But what I don't remember is the fact that he gets double teamed, almost turns the ball over, somehow sneaks through the double team, gets quadruple teamed by literally everybody on the court, puts up a really, like, an objectively terrible shot. Yeah. And then literally... All five guys on Florida just converge on DeAndre Daniels under the basket. And he just kind of volleyball tips it over to Shabazz at the top of the, the, the free throw line. And, I mean, that might have been the easiest shot he's ever made. There's a wide open free throw, basically, for the win. And bang. <laughs> just just yeah. there you go. Like, that was, I mean, the whole sequence is wild. Like, it's honestly insane like the, the fact that Shabazz Napier hits a buzzer beater when when the game is extremely unsurprising but the sequence of events that led to get up to get there was like it feels like the 2014 season in a nutshell like you're just like yeah you, you look back and you're like oh, there's no way that should have worked but that was dope <laughs> yeah those 17 seconds were the longest hour of the entire season like oh man so they come back on the floor I just like I instinctively knew also to get my phone out and start recording because you know the ball was going to be in Shabazz's hands in the final seconds, so we all knew what could and you know possibly would happen. Um, yeah, they so like you said they trap him up high like that, and I'm just like, oh, there it is. But he starts to wiggle his way through, and again from my angle, like 
I I looked and I was like, he definitely double dribbled there. Like he literally just like threw the ball to himself and you know and tried to pick up his dribble and I was like, where's the whistle? Like when what is happening right now? But then you know looking at the replay, you see that a Florida player gets their hand on the ball and just kind of like looks like they're about to strip it away and so Shabazz is able to like recover it like he like he lost the ball. And from there, it just continues to be mass chaos. That shot was, as you said, objectively, like, without a shadow of a doubt, horrible. Um, but, you know, DeAndre, DeAndre was able to slip around Patrick Young, like, able to get on get on the outside of him and just, like, cut in toward the hoop and just, like, perfect timing to get there and make the tip back. I don't, He didn't even know where Shabazz was. He just kind of instinctively knew to play it back like that. And as soon as Shabazz gets the ball back in his hands, you're just like, that's game. Yeah, man. I mean, yeah, the, the final shot was just a thing of beauty. You know, the, the sequence of events that led to it were weird and kind of awesomely bad. But yeah, like it was it was it was crazy. And like the walking off the court or the, the like the literal walk off. That was like the coldest thing I think I've ever seen Shabazz do, yeah. at least up to that point, like. <laughs> Just like, see ya, I'm out, bye. <laughs> and then everybody just chases him. Florida's just like, what the hell just happened? And the crowd is like, can we go follow him too? And it's like, no, yeah. that would be, that that would not be great. Oh man, yeah. And then like, so I got to give you a shout out here. Your video uh, of, of this last play has been watched on YouTube 98,000 times. Like that thing blew up. Like, I mean, and, and like, I don't think it had that many at first. So like, it's been continuously viewed ever since, uh, your, your video, your angle, like, I, you know, you keep talking about like your, your angle. I think you had a better look than the ESPN crew did. Cause they're like the, the last, like, you know, the, the last possession, the camera angles were a little weird, like, especially the celebration. You couldn't see a damn thing that was happening. Right. So, you know, obviously you, you had as good a view as anybody. I mean, I don't know. What was, were, what, oh, what were you thinking you. of, I guess, just a, a kind of about the whole video aspect and just kind of what you what you got to see there i like i was just trying like you know i had done like i had done so much in terms of like writing and stuff like that and i had never really done anything with video as much as i should have and i just felt like it was like the right time to get my phone out and record it and so i like like you said it just kind of like it's blown up a little bit and i just as soon as the as soon as the game was over like before like before everyone even left the court i'm like i need to get this on youtube or something like i just need to like get this up somewhere so that people can see it so i was able i think i got it on twitter i was able to get it up on youtube within a few minutes and then uh amazingly um i'm not really ama- like i know like people do this all the time now that i now that i work at a place like espn i know this is like kind of just a normal thing but um, Fox Sports got in touch with me and asked if they could use the video. So I had to stay up the whole night anyway because I had, you know, I had writing to do and then I had a bunch of homework I had to catch up on. And so I was sitting there watching that uh, when uh, Jay Orne and Dan O'Neill the, were the guys on uh, Fox Sports doing their own, uh, their own uh, sports highlight show. I think I I ended up watching like I just had it on the in the background for like seven hours because I really like pulled an all nighter that night, and every hour I saw my video playing again on FS1 and I was just like, that's pretty cool. Yeah, that that's pretty dope, <laughs> man. 
Yeah, no, it's funny. Like this, like 2014, if you really stop and think about it, was like, you know, Twitter and like social media had obviously existed for a couple of years already. But 2014 is really when it sort of, pick, you know, picked up in a meaningful way. Like, right. you know, when I like when I covered UConn at, uh, you know, back in college, I don't ha- I didn't have very many followers. And to be honest, nobody really did. And then yeah. but like by the time, you know, we get to, you know, 2014, like what happened with you is like a thing that happened that just, and it was, I, I don't really, it was the first time I can remember like somebody like who I knew kind of going super, super viral because of <laughs> just cause they just happened to film the, like, you know, the right play at the right angle on the court. Like, yeah. you know, cause believe me, like I covered Kemba, like imagine like if I, like how many of similar videos I could have had of Kemba, like in the 2011 season, I probably would have had like, exactly, yeah. like a half dozen different ones go like, you know, like millions of views potentially, but it's just, we just weren't there yet. So 2014 right. was just like a cool moment, I guess, where UConn was good enough to justify that sort of viral fame and Shabazz was the man to deliver it, I guess. Definitely. <laughs> so uh, UConn wins. Oh yeah. UConn wins this game 65, 64. Um, did anything stand out to you upon the rewatch or if, you know, with a, I guess like at any point you've rewatched it since then? Um, the, the big thing, like I said, was just like the size of Florida and how UConn had to overcome that. I mean, it was like, it was really jarring to me to watch that and see just how much of a, like almost a physical mismatch there was. Um, but the, I mean, other than that, just, you know, the, <laughs> The thing, and this this goes to, I know we normally talk about the commentary bits. Um, this, like, the one that stood out for me right at the beginning of watching this game, uh, watching it back, was the, the announcers talking about UConn having wins over BCS conference teams. And I was just like, <laughs> ooh, that's right. Uh, like, that one just, like, it almost like, it was almost like talking about UConn as a mid-major. And that was just a smack in the face, because I was just like... Oh yeah, that was this moment in time. That was the beautiful dawn of the American, and you know all the hope and joy that it brought with us. So, yeah, you know those those big wins over power power teams like Boston College. You know that's funny because they they didn't like the the Power Five terminology didn't exist yet, huh? Because the because right. uh, the BCS it was the last year of the BCS. So, yeah, because then the college football playoff comes in the next year. So, right. Yeah, that was interesting, man. <laughs> yeah, wow. Damn, that that's Dude, how did we get through these last like 5 years? <laughs> I have no idea, man. <laughs> like this uh, like god, could you like this year, like 2014 was so much fun, but now that you think about it, it really just kind of masked what really could have and should have been a, a really dark time. I mean, yeah. it ended up kind of like forestalling the, you know, the darkness to come. I mean, 2017 and 2018 was just man. <laughs> This is just yeah, rough, dude. <laughs> I have high hopes for the future now. I'm definitely like excited for what's to come. But man, the 2014 team was such a blessing, man. Like, yeah, like they really saved what could have been a really man. This could have been so bad. Like, if we're being honest, yeah, seriously. Um, you talk about the physical mismatch. Though, like we've talked about this on past episodes where we've discussed the 2014 team, but this this front court was was in something else. You know, Phil Nolan, Tyler Olander, and Amita Brima were all effective at times, and they were able to get the job done. You know, clearly they they were able to. You know, Phil Nolan's performance in the national championship game was, well, I don't know, it was different. But th- those yeah. they 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 were they they just it was, it was so crazy to see the team this good have such a 
such a motley crew for their their front court. <laughs> I always say like you know I, I have to preface this with like I do love Phil Nolan. Um, he and I got along really well in college. Like we used to see each other away from basketball, and uh, we were always like he was always uh, he was a buddy. But I uh, I always have to describe this 2014 team as they won a national championship with Phil Nolan at center, <laughs> like. I think that 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 itself is a massive accomplishment because you know he wasn't the most dominant center, and I just we're we're looking at the box score of this game. You know, one of three with one rebound fouls out. Turn like like what? <laughs> like and like that's how? all like all three of them basically. Like yeah, your starting center gets a you get eleven minutes out of them. And then, so then you have to turn to Olander, who you know year four, and again that's pretty much the same, the same. <laughs> box score except he didn't score played 11 minutes he fouled out and then you have Brima who's a freshman and still trying to grow into his body um at that point he was not he was not at a spot where he was ready to step in like that in a in a big game so it was just that front court was a mismatch yeah it was it was so it was like it's really funny to watch these games looking back because a you know that it like it somehow is good enough and then you also see like you know this this team and its comp- roster composition went up against Florida, Kentucky, and Michigan State, and beat all three of them. Like, just I don't even know what to say, man. Like, <laughs> this team, this team, like they, it's like it makes no sense, really. Like, no. if it's truly, really, like if you want to point to like give a good argument as to why Shabazz Napier deserves to be, you know, higher on the UConn power rankings than maybe some of the other guys who you might be inclined to put him ahead of just like, look what he did with like that team. Like, you know, the 2000, like let's like kind of go down the list of great UConn basketball teams that maybe didn't win at all. You know, 1990, they had great, great players all over the court. You know, 1995, you have Ray Allen, you have, you know, Kevin Ollie, the player. Um, Well, well, really let's just say from 94 to 96, you have some combination of those guys plus Danielle Marshall and a whole heaping load of other great players at every position. You know, in 2000, you know, the 2002 team, you have Karan Butler and then basically the, young, the you know, the prototype version of the 2004 team. The right. 2006 team, I mean, God, like, do I even need to uh, say it? Like, that team, holy crap. <laughs> and then you have this. Probably, like, oh, the best team, the best team that hasn't won it, or one of the best teams that hasn't won it, clearly the best team in the country that year, and didn't even need Andrew Bynum to be the best team. Oh, my God. Dude, could you imagine the 2006 team with that front court if you had Andrew Bynum? I mean, that's like, I, I don't even, I mean, to be honest, I'm not sure if that even works. Just like, that's just like, that's just too many, that's just too many bigs. Like, yeah. I mean, I guess, I guess Hilton Armstrong may not play as much in that circumstance, but like he was great. Yeah. So like, it almost doesn't even matter. Like, man. Right. And then like, yeah. So then you got like, those are those teams and all their like, you know, all around talent. And then you have the 2014 team, which, I mean, wasn't really that talented like overall, and yet they won it all, and they were consistently great against great teams. Like, you know, their record speaks for themselves. They, you know, they other than Louisville, who they had just pretty much couldn't deal with for some reason, they beat all the best teams in the country that year, and yeah. they weren't flukes. Like, they literally like the fact that they beat Florida a second time was definitely like their way of being like, no, no, this is this is real. What you're seeing is not a, not a mirage. Like, you know, we beat that team before, and we're gonna beat them again. 
And you know, who, who are the guys who like, there was like multiple prominent media guys who were just like, Oh yeah, no, that was a fluke that Florida's going to kill them. And I was like, yeah. nah, nah, dude, it's <laughs> it. uh, so yeah. Defense and foul shooting, man. Those are, uh, and obviously a guy who can hit every shot from every angle at any point in the game. Those are, uh, those are the big three factors. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, Sh- Shabazz being like the player he was, I mean, we've said it every, almost every episode I've had you on, we've just talked about how much fun Shabazz was and all the moments. One of these days, we should just do an episode that's just a power ranking of Shabazz's best shots. Oh, and, man. Yeah, geez, I don't even know where to start. This would have to yeah. be this would have to be very close to the top of the list. But what I appreciated was that he, he goes, you know, he hits five three-pointers in this game, and all of them were absolutely wet, like, you know, from crazy angles, from deep, from close, whatever. I don't think a single one of them hit the rim. There's just... <laughs> Bang every time. Uh, so uh, there's a couple of great sequences here. Were there any any uh, in particular that stood out to you as like your favorite uh, moment to rewatch? Uh, we talked about them uh, as we were talking about the game, but definitely that seven zero run in the second half. Because like I said, if if they don't turn that around, it's game over. And they come back, and it leads to this massive big red tide. The just the place shakes after after that run because UConn gets back into it. And then the entire final 90 seconds was just, it took forever. It was intense. It was nerve-wracking. It was chaotic. It was just, it was everything that makes college basketball beautifully ugly. And it was just, it was a lot of fun to, to look back at that and, you know, remember being there and thinking about how, how weird the whole thing was and how awesome at the same time. Yeah, the last two minutes was my vote, um, and especially because Florida made them earn it. Like Florida made basically every play they had to make to win the game, at least offensively. Defensively, clearly not. But you know, they, you know, Patrick Young gets the three-point play. Frazier gets to the basket, and he knocks down what could have been the winner. I mean, how many times have we seen that where UConn seems like they do everything they need to win the game against a good team, and then some dude just gets loose and hits a basket, you know, take a one-point lead. <laughs> And then UConn's last possession is an absolute tire fire. And then we're all just like, we all go to bed angry because we're just like, I cannot believe they lost that game. Yeah. This had the potential to be a really bad one of those. Oh, for sure. Oh, my gosh. But those are, we were saving those for the year after. You know, <laughs> your, your Yales, your Texases. Uh, uh, we don't, don't have to do episodes on those. No, but, uh, we will not be we doing. Were, we were just building those up. We had all the good karma for a year. And then it all just blew up. Yeah, 2014 feels like the cashing in on all the bad karma that UConn has ever had, both since then and before that. Like, yeah. you know, UConn doesn't win the national title in 1990, 94, 95, 96. You know, the 2006 happens, 2015 through 2018 happens. It's like, yeah, but you know what? 2014 happens. So, you know, yeah. it just whatever. It all, so it kind of feels like. I know I'm, you know, I'm a Patriots fan, so it's just like trying to complain about losing the 2007 undefeated season. It's like, yeah, well, then again, you also got 2014 and 16, and you know that craziness. So, exactly, you know, kind of like it all averages out in the end, I guess. If your program is great, they'll they'll win the appropriate number of titles, even if maybe they win in some of the wrong years and lose in some of the right years, or what, yeah. vice versa. I don't know what you guys know what I mean. Um. So, yeah, so we talked about stats a little bit. Uh, Shabazz finishes with 26 points, uh, 9 for 14 for the game, uh, 5 for 8 from 3. 
Uh, just really strong overall performance. Um, Ryan Boatwright, not the greatest shooting day. He has nine points on two for eight shooting, but he did a lot of other good things. Uh, three rebounds, four assists, and a lot of great defense. Uh, DeAndre Daniels, I feel like we should talk about him at length a little bit. 14 points, seven rebounds, and kind of just like his role the whole season was the guy who did everything really well without you really noticing. Um, what are your, what were your thoughts on DeAndre in this game and in the overall, especially? Yeah. Like I said at the start, I think he was kind of in a way an unsung hero of this game. Like we talk about like this, we talk about this as the Shabazz game, I feel like a lot. And DeAndre, you know, like said, six to 10 shooting finishes with 14 points and the way he made the shots that he made, it was I, it definitely gets overshadowed because of the way Shabazz just has a propensity to hit everything from every ridiculous angle, no matter how many people are on him. There were times where uh, Daniels would, like, he'd run into the lane or, like, be at the free throw line. There was one shot where it's, like, he looks like he just kind of threw it, like, just like an overhand throw at the hoop as he was running full speed, and it goes right in. I don't think it hit the rim. I don't think it hit the backboard. Like, he just threw it, and it fell through. Um, he had a few shots like that in this game, just some really acrobatic stuff. And it seemed like with, with the bigs struggling to, uh, a do anything and B stay on the court. A lot of it really fell to Deandre, which I feel like is kind of a theme for that whole season. You know, obviously to have a, an athletic, almost like a wing like that. Um, he was amazing offensively from, for most of that season. And, he stepped up in big ways defensively when he needed to because, you know, the other bigs couldn't really cut it. So he had to step into situations where he was basically filling the void as a five and, you know, just trying to match up with these guys who had a lot more meat on their bones because we know, like, Daniels was strong, but he was not the not the biggest guy in, in terms of muscle mass on the floor. And... You know, he held his own, and he always did whatever he needed to to get the team the win. Yeah, this UConn team definitely felt like they pioneered the small five movement because, yeah, a lot of times you did see that with DeAndre or Neil. Even Neil's, Neil's Giffey played. Uh, <laughs> I don't think it happened in this game, but there were some games where he would play center, and you're like, wow, okay. Well, yeah. <laughs> that, we're that taking stretch five to a insane, insane lengths here, but whatever, it was, it was clearly working for him. Um, UConn as a team shoots 11 for 24 from three, um, Florida. So it's probably worth mentioning Florida shot 49% for the game. Uh, their three point uh, shooting percentage wasn't quite as good, but you know, it's a clean game overall. Like, you know, both teams did have a a lot of turnovers UConn had 14 and uh, Florida had 16. So uh, it wasn't a clean game exactly, but it was very efficient. Uh, both teams shot well. And uh, that kind of, if you rewatch it, that bears it out. Like it, it's definitely there aren't very many points where you're like, "Boy, these teams suck right now." That, that I think UConn goes cold for like four minutes in the first half, and otherwise both teams were playing good basketball, um, which I think made this game certainly a uh, much better rewatch in retrospect. Yeah, absolutely. Um, they just and looking at some some more of these stats, um, the things that really pop pop off the page to me are. Uh, the especially looking at the bench points, you know, Florida only got three points off the bench. Um, UConn got twelve, which you know, but then you look at you see that Giffy was on the bench at the start of this game. He finished with eight points. Um, Chroma had one. Um, Chroma had one, and Brima had three. So it was really you know, it was basically Niels Giffy stepping off the bench and playing his usual role for uh, or 
at the start a less extensive role, but obviously he became a massive figure in that team throughout the season. Um, <laughs> you mentioned all the turnovers. UConn, 24 to 14 points off turnovers. That obviously ended up being a big factor in the game, especially on those runs. You know, we were talking about Shabazz making those big steals during those during those runs that they had, and that obviously became a huge factor. But the points in the paint, I mean, I've been talking nonstop about how big Florida was compared to UConn. 32 to 14 Florida in the paint. That, like... I feel like when you see something like that, like if the first stat you look at is points in the paint, you don't know who won the game, you don't know anything else about how the game played out, you're like, oh, that game got ugly, didn't it? And like half their points from right right under the hoop. Like, you know, that's like I see a stat like that and I'm like, how did UConn win that game? Yeah, well, you know, it's just kind of the nature of those teams. Uh, and you can see yeah. that, that that's like how it was in the stat sheet, too. Florida, you know, Casey Prather led them with 19.7 rebounds, and he scored the majority of his points basically just slashing to the basket in the first 10 minutes of the second half. Uh, Patrick Young finished with 17 points and 7 rebounds, and obviously we know how he got those. He was just big-boying which whoever UConn tried to put, him, put up against yeah. him. Uh, Scotty Wilbekin had 15 points, so he was kind of – you know the the main the main guy for um from the outside at least. Um, one thing that stood out to me uh, surprisingly few blocks by either team. Um, UConn recorded three. Florida surprisingly only had two. I was a little surprised. I would have thought Patrick Young would have rejected a few more, but I think that was just kind of a large part because y- UConn smartened up. They're like, all right, we're not gonna drive against that dude. Like, <laughs> let's. We're, we're obviously we're hitting our three, so let's just keep doing that until it stops working. And luckily, it never stopped working. Yeah. Um, do you have any thoughts on the broadcast? Um, outside of that, uh, outside of that BCS comment, um, not a whole lot actually. Nothing really stood out to me. I may have missed something, but uh, you know, the other, you know, I too, every time I heard, uh, every time I heard Seth Greenberg say uh, Shabazz instead of Shabazz, <laughs> it was like, like, I felt like a little twitch. Like I was just like, that's not it. That's not it. Like, obviously a very small detail, but I just, like, I hear something like that, and I'm like, no! Shabazz. <laughs> Man. Yeah, so, yeah, so uh, Bob Wischusen and Seth Greenberg are the commentators. I thought they were fine. I mean, I don't know. This, like, these games kind of go three ways for me. Either the commentators are really, really good, the commentators are, like, you know, fine. And then, like, rarely there'll be, like, a game where, like, one of the guys, it's usually the color commentator, is just saying a bunch of nonsense and it's annoying. But that's like I don't, I can't, I don't believe I've done an episode of this podcast yet where I've, uh, that's been the case yet. So, um, nah. Andy Katz as the sideline reporter was a nice touch. I I, I enjoy his work a, a lot. Oh yeah, I miss uh, I miss Andy on the sidelines for uh, for those big games like that. We used to have some fun with him. I remember there was a game. It was the year before because I was still in the student section, and we. Uh, the marketing people had done a great job of like starting to communicate with us and uh, getting us like all like the big heads and stuff that we wanted. So like, I remember one time they like they came over and they just like one of the marketing people gave me a piece of paper and a pen and they're like, "We want you to take down some notes. We want you to like ask people what kind of signs and big heads they want, and we'll we'll work on getting some of them for you." So we were able to get one for uh, of Ted from the movie because Ted had just come out and we, we loved him. And I have a photo somewhere 
um, I think I have it on Instagram or something, where someone held out the TED sign uh, right next to Andy Katz, and they were like, Andy, turn around, like, can we get a picture of you with TED? And so I'm just like, I snapped a photo of Andy Katz and TED together on, uh, on the sideline, but he was just like, he's like, okay. He just, he had so much fun with us. He was, you know, he was great to have around for those games for sure. Man, that's great. You know what that reminds me? I'm going to go on a little bit of a tangent here, but I had kind of a similar thing with um, Dick Vitale. Uh, So my senior year in the 2012 season, there was a really, really epic uh, Gamble Pavilion college game day game, uh, UConn versus Syracuse. Um, oh, yeah. UConn ended up losing that one. I, honestly, I might do an episode on it anyway because that was one of my the most fun games I've ever got to. You know, I, I didn't get to do very many games as a fan after my junior year, so that was sort of a, a kind of a, a special game for me. But um, Dick Vitale, so you know, I, I have a big head of uh, of Jeremy Lamb smiling, which I made myself, and which the, I convinced the you know the UConn marketing people to basically let let me bring in. And yeah. uh, we had all the other crazy signs and stuff. And you know, Dick Vitale. You know, a lot of people love. You know, a lot of people love him. A lot of people think he's annoying. At the time, I think I was sort of, kind of on the fence. Uh, so, but one thing nobody can say about Dick Vitale is that he's certainly nothing if not enthusiastic. So at one point, you know, we're we're all in the student section and we we just yell to him and we're like, "Yo, Dick Vitale!" And we're kind of expecting him to either ignore us or kind of wave to us or whatever. And he turns to us and like with this huge goofy grin on his face, just waves to us with both of his hands, like over his head, like he's trying to signal a cab. He's like, Hey, and then he turns around and then like kind of continue walking wherever he was going. Then he stops and turns around and kind of just like hustles over and just kind of like mobs us. And he's just like, Hey guys, how are you guys doing? And we're just like, yo, you're the man. Can we have a photo? He's like, Oh, of course. Yeah, let's go. And gets somebody to take a picture. And yeah, I was just like, okay, Dick Vitale's cool. Uh, that was that was uh that was awesome. That was the 2012 game, right? Yeah, actually, uh, you you probably were you there for that? You must have you must have probably been in that picture too, oh, or like I. So I was there for I was there 24 hours before that game. Um, we, my friends and I, we didn't sleep for a solid 40 hours because uh, we camped out for game day, and then we camped or like we stood in line for the game, got our usual spots in the front row, and you know Dickie V does his stand up before the game. And he he insists on everyone pushing in and being as close together as humanly possible, so that we could all be in the shot with him. And uh, that was just that was so much fun. He was so excited to like just to be around us, to to have fun with us, to get us all in the shot with him. Uh, that was that was a wild one. Yeah. Okay. See, so you know what's up then. Yeah. Because I was yeah. I, I, oh, ca- yeah. I camped out that night too. So all right. Nice. Well, anyway, we're we'll we'll. <laughs> A conversation, good conversation for another episode. Yes. Um, so, just I guess back to the relevant issue at hand. Uh, so, yeah, the uh, 2014 broadcast. I had two notes here that um, I wanted to point out. Uh, one is a is a blooper, a really one of the all timers actually. So, during the starting lineups, you know, they have their their they flash the players' names and faces, you know, while they're showing them on the bench or whatever. So they do that for Florida, and then they show UConn, but they don't show the UConn men. They show the UConn women's team starting lineup. Amazing! <laughs> it was so funny. I just was like, "Oh, hold on a second. I got to stop and rewind that." And like, it was it was clearly just like you know a graphic that they kind of had a placeholder for. It was missing the the pictures for some reason, but it was just like, "Yeah, starting for UConn, uh, Brianna Stewart and uh, you know and and company." I was just like, "Whoa, hold on!" And then they they like you know quickly get bring it down, and then they put the correct graphic up, and I was just like, "Huh, eh, we all saw it." <laughs> <laughs> 
that's incredible. So that was that was a funny one. Um, and then this yeah. was, this one's not really a broadcast specific one, as it is something that just happened. But after the game was over, um, you know, they're, they, uh, Andy Katz is interviewing Kevin Ollie, and the whole team just huddles up behind him. And I'd forgotten about that, but that was definitely one of my favorite kind of tr- uh, early Kevin Ollie era traditions, where the whole team would uh, would just sort of crowd behind whoever's being talked to and yeah. it was something like you know obviously i don't know what happened with kevin ollie but his first two seasons at uconn were, were objectively awesome and you know his the way he like got all these players like they, they really bought in like as a family here i don't know that was just something that kind of got me a little nostalgic i was like oh yeah that's right yeah 2014 like you know for, for all the kind of ultimate issues that kevin ollie had down the road like in 2014 man he was he he was something else team that team loved him yeah that was always great you know those early years like you said you know starting with the 12 13 team um you know i think that started like actually after that first game against michigan state and then we saw it a bunch of other times especially against syracuse and i think when we beat syracuse in 2013 that was kind of like that was the moment that led to everything else it seemed like in those first couple years and yeah, you could tell like he was all about just like keeping that team together, just keeping everyone bonded, making it, making it a proper like brotherhood, a family. And he did a great job of that in those first couple of years. And then you know we can do multiple, we can do multiple episodes about why it went wrong after that. But that was always a great thing to see in those first two seasons. Yeah, no, absolutely. So uh, I guess let's start to wrap this up. So top dog, you know, who won the game? I mean, it's pretty clear that, it, uh, you know, who that would be. So let's, uh, I guess, can you just give me one more thought on Shabazz Napier and, uh, you know, just everything that he had, <laughs> had going for him in this game? It's, it's so hard to say anything about Shabazz that we haven't already said. But he just, like, every single time he does something like that, he just mystifies you in a new way. Like, it's, he always found ways to win the game, but it was never the exact same way. Like, you know, it's funny because I feel like I think back to when Kemba Walker was leading the way. And in that 2010-2011 season, um, you know, we always talk about the Pittsburgh step back. But he also made pretty much that exact same shot to win the game at Texas. And, you know, it was just, like, it was something that he was able to do. He was always able to just, like, get you on the step back or take a guy one-on-one or drive the rim. Shabazz always found a different way, whether it was a 30-foot three-pointer with two seconds left, whether it was, you know, this chaotic scene here, whether, like, he just a million and one ways to win a game for you. And I think it was before, before then... You know, I think we all loved and we appreciated Shabazz, but I don't think it was until the Florida game that, you know, at least for me, and maybe I was late to it, um, that's when I started to realize just, like, what Shabazz was in the grand scheme of the last few years of UConn basketball and what he actually meant for the program and, like, that he was actually going to be among in the conversation among the all-time greats by the end of that year. I think that's when I started to really realize and appreciate just who Shabazz Napier was. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think that this is probably the game that sort of sealed it for all of us that like he can be trusted to make the big play. Cause so, you know, we've talked at length about his game against Villanova in 2012, where he hits frankly, one of the most ill-advised, but awesome three pointers to win the game ever. (laughs) And, you know, the difference was in that moment, 
he takes a shot and we're all we all groan and we're like no whereas in this one it's just like like no it's like it's gonna be fine like Shabazz, yeah. it may not be pretty and this one it was not pretty but you know you, you trust that it's gonna he's gonna win you the game and you know he in the senior year i mean he pretty much did like every time like I, I can't recall for sure exactly how some of the last you know possessions played out in games they lost but you know my my recollection is you know when they needed him he was there and you know it was definitely a transformation over the course of his career and this was sort of the moment where you're like oh yeah no we shabazz shabazz is not only is he incredibly clutch and incredibly ballsy, but he's one of the best players in the country. Maybe the best player in the country. Who knows? So <laughs> definitely, definitely yeah, the most absolutely. fun. All right, Tim. Well, hey, thanks again for coming on. You know, glad glad we uh, could make this happen. Uh, this is one I've been looking forward to for a while. So um, yeah. So I don't know. Any any uh, last words for the people? Um, I'm just always happy to be back. <laughs> so like I said, I love talking about these games with you, man. And I. I love doing it, so hopefully we can do it again soon. Absolutely. Well, we'll uh, we'll we'll make we'll get you back soon enough. Uh, everybody else, thanks so much for listening. Uh, you guys know the drill. Uh, follow me on Twitter at Max Cerullo, M-A-C-C-E-R-U-L-L-O. DMs are open. Uh, email at yesyukonpodcast at gmail.com. Five-star reviews. Got to game that algorithm. And, uh, yeah, we will be back next week, so you guys all have a good one. <laughs>